me that maybe it's a presumption to assume that everybody in this room or is online has a deep familiarity with the Bible. So I thought I would uh, make it a practice to explain some of the allusions before we sing the songs. Now this week, the songs are pretty straightforward. I would say the biggest um, allusion in the songs that we'll sing today that might not be familiar with everybody, with everybody is the fact that it refers to a lot of inanimate objects praising the Lord. And there's a number of places in Scripture where that is found happening, mostly in the Psalms. And we're going to read together Psalm 148 as a background to that. And one of, but it did occur to me that one of the words in that Psalm is glory. And I just recently learned that the ancient understanding of the word glory is a little different than we modern Americans have. You know, I think of glory, it's like magnificence and splendor and a radiance and a pomp, that kind of thing. But to the ancients, it meant a high status, the very highest status. And more than that, it's people acknowledging or agreeing that that status is very high. So when we see things like give glory to God, means give God the highest status that you have. Glorify your name, Jesus prayed. That means give status to, that, to the name of God. And to God be the glory. So to God be the highest status that there is. So I thought that was fairly useful correction of my understanding of the word. So anyway, let's... Sing, let's not sing together. Let's stand together, and then we'll sing. But let's read together this snippet from Psalm 148. We'll do it responsively, so just follow the lead on the slides. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens, and praise him in the heights above. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his heavenly hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens, and you waters above the skies. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for at his command they were created. Praise the Lord from the earth, your great sea creatures and all ocean depths, lightning and hail, snow and clouds, stormy winds that do his bidding. You mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, wild animals and all cattle, small creatures and flying birds, kings of the earth and all nations, you princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and women, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His splendor is above the earth and the heavens. So let's now sing together. Every 
Stars and angels sing around me, center of unbroken praise. Field and forest, vale and mountain, flowery meadow, flashing sea, chanting bird and flowing fountain, call us to rejoice in thee.
a joy to gather together as we just sang in that song, to come together and to praise God and thank God for all that He's done for us, the works of His hands. Like there's so many things we, or at least I, prone to take for granted sometimes. Right? But come together in this moment, in this time, we can put aside other cares, other concerns, and we can reflect on all that God has done for us and praise Him and thank Him for Him for that in, in worship. So it's good to be here with you this morning. If you are visiting, my name is Tim. I'm the senior pastor here at Three Lake Evangelical Free Church, and we are we're glad that you're here with us. A couple of things to kind of bring to your attention this morning. One is that next Sunday, following the service, we'll have our, our quarterly meeting. Um, and we will hear a few reports, and we'll vote on some new members. So if you're a member here, we'd invite you and encourage you to be part of that. If you're not a member, but you still want to come and hear those reports and be part of that, we would also love to have you be a part of that. If you are visiting with us this morning, if there's anything you want to communicate with the church, there's a connect card in the, in the seat in front of you. We'd invite you to fill that out. You can drop that in one of the boxes on the back wall on your way out this morning. That's also where tithes and offering can go if you want to contribute to what we're doing here as a church. But again, we're just glad that you're here with us. I am delighted that we can come together in this time and fix our mind, fix our heart on all that God has done for us in Jesus. And so as we continue to do that, would you pray with me now? Father, we thank you for the chance to, to gather, the chance to come together as your people in the place that you have provided. We thank you for the chance to worship. We thank you for the chance to praise you. Thank you for the chance to quiet our minds and reflect on all you've done for us. Then after reflecting to come and to sing our thanks and our praise to you. We pray this morning, Father, for, for those in our church family who are walking through hard times, walking through struggles. Pray that you would be with them, you'd be present, you'd give them a sense of your comfort as they walk through whatever trial they are walking through. And we pray as we, we come and we hear your word this morning, Father, that it would transform our lives. That because we hear your word, because you've revealed your word to us in the Bible, that it would do its work and make us more like Jesus. That it would continually work to transform us little by little more and more into the image of Christ, knowing we'll never be perfect in this life, but looking forward to the day when all our sins will be totally dealt with as we worship you around your throne in the new heavens and the new earth. But until that day comes, would we worship you here in the opportunity to provide, and would we 
seek to become more like Jesus as we hear your word and seek to put it into practice. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we'll continue our worship. We'll continue giving glory to God. If you are able, we'll want to stand to, uh, to worship. Uh, you're welcome to do that. And uh, my, my hope as I planned this service was that no matter where your home church is, I see a lot of visitors here, that you will know these songs. So let's worship the Lord and give him glory. Pardon me. I have one good eye and one bad eye, and I have to wear cheaters, so I need to be able to see the music. Sorry about that. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, O oh my soul, worship His holy name, sing like men. Oh, my soul, I'll worship your 
you show us the way you don't give up on us the way you saved us in Jesus pray in Jesus name Amen if you're child age 4 through 7 they are dismissed to children's church this morning Some of you may recall or may have seen the movie Karate Kid from back in 1984, which is before I was born. <laughs> it's in that movie, I'm told, because there's, there's this guy, Mr. Miyagi, and he's this eccentric apartment handyman, but he's later revealed to be like an expert in karate. He revealed that when he single-handedly saved the teenager Daniel LaRusso from a gang of bullies. And so Daniel sees Mr. Miyagi's karate skills and he, he asks Mr. Miyagi to teach him karate. And at first, Mr. Miyagi declines, but eventually he comes around and he agrees to, to teach Daniel karate. But things don't get off to a great start for Daniel. Instead of teaching Daniel karate, Mr. Miyagi has Daniel do a series of menial tasks, right? Like sanding the floor, and waxing his car, and painting his house. And understandably, Daniel gets pretty frustrated by this treatment. He can more frustrated and more frustrated until just before that frustration boils over and Daniel's going to storm off 
Right? There's this famous scene in which Mr. Miyagi showed Daniel how all those skills, all those motions that were required to sand floors and to wax cars and to paint houses, he showed them how those motions are valuable in karate. And in that moment, when Mr. Miyagi explains that to Daniel, you'll see everything kind of come together and click in Daniel's mind. He sees how everything that Mr. Miyagi's been having him do has been leading up to him, finding culmination in that moment. It all comes together, it all clicks. Or if you, if you played sports, maybe you had a, a similar experience where all those hours of practicing all came together during a game. Like maybe you played basketball, right? And like you spent hours practicing dribbling and hours practicing shooting and hours passing and rebounding and working on your fitness and on defense and on all these things. And, like, and then it just comes together in one glorious moment, one great game where you just, everything comes together. I never had a game like that, but <laughs> maybe some of you more talented athletes did. But there's, like, there's something special, right? When all the work, all the groundwork you've put into something comes together. All the plans have been laid and they all work and they find culmination. There's something special in that moment. And in today's passage, in Luke 19, we see much of the work that Jesus has been doing all throughout his ministry come together and find culmination in the story of a man named Zacchaeus. Of course, like Jesus' work won't be fully complete until he finishes his work on the cross. But much of what the cross makes possible is on display here in this passage. Right? So the vast majority of the book of Luke have been more or less kind of Luke's travel log as they've traveled throughout Israel on their way to Jerusalem. Right? So in chapter 9, Luke told us that at the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And from then, chapter 9 until now, everything in this book has been a travelogue of things that are happening on the way to Jerusalem. And today's passage, this is like the final action scene in the book of Luke before they reach Jerusalem. Next week we'll look at a final parable Jesus teaches, but this is the final, like, action scene in the book of Luke before Jerusalem. And as such, like all the pieces of Jesus' ministry come together in this passage. And because of that, I think this is a really important story. If we're going to understand what, who Jesus is and what he came to do. The story of Zacchaeus is so important. And yet, if you know anything about the story of Zacchaeus... You probably know that Zacchaeus was, what? A wee little man, right? And a wee little man was he. And he climbed up on a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And as the Savior came that way, he looked up on the tree and he said, Zacchaeus, you come down from there for I'm going to your house today. You're welcome for not singing that. <laughs> okay, that, that's true. Like All those lines in that song are indeed true facts from this story. And yet... They all miss the point of the story. There's nothing in that song that actually teaches us what this story is trying to teach us. The song teaches the the content of the story, 
without teaching us anything of the theology of the story. Right? It teaches us what happens without teaching us why it matters. Like, it doesn't teach us anything about what we learn about God in this story. And like, just as an aside, right, this is kind of a common problem with lots of Christian content, especially that directed at kids. Right? Like we're, we're really good at teaching kids like, the content of the Bible, the stories of the Bible. But a lot of times we're not great at teaching them why those stories actually matter. And so, lest we make the same mistake here this morning, we're going to start by looking at the last two verses in this passage. These are verses that that song never makes reference to, never mentions, but they tell us why this story really matters. So, let's see that we see in verses 9 and 10 of this passage. Jesus said to them, Today salvation has come to his house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So the story of Zacchaeus is ultimately the story of a man who experienced the salvation that Jesus makes possible. Jesus' mission in coming was to seek and save the lost. That was his mission, that was his goal, and Zacchaeus' salvation is proof that Jesus has succeeded in that mission. To put it another way, Zacchaeus' story is a picture of the salvation that Jesus came to make possible. The process through which that Zacchaeus is saved in this passage, that we see Zacchaeus walk through, that whole process is a, is a paradigm, it's a picture of the process that everyone who is ever saved by Jesus goes through. As we walk through the details of this story and the rest of our time together, we'll see each one of those steps. And we'll see why the salvation of Zacchaeus is so incredible. We'll see why it's a powerful culmination of all that Jesus has done in his ministry up to this point. And the first part of Jesus' ministry that we see exemplified in this story is that Jesus seeks lost sinners. So we saw this clearly in, in Luke chapter 15. Like we looked at the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost son. And Jesus sought after each of those lost things. The coin didn't find its way back to its owner. The woman who lost the coin had to go fervently search for it. The sheep wandered off, and the shepherd had to leave the 99 and go seek after the sheep. The sheep wasn't trying to find its way back. And in this passage, we see the same thing, right? It's that the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Not to save those who seek Him. It is Jesus who seeks lost sinners. This is once again seen in the story of Zacchaeus. Starting in verse 1, we read this. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. There's two things to notice here in verse 2. The first, throughout... Throughout the whole book of Luke, one of the chief complaints, one of the chief things that bother people about Jesus is that he eats and spends time with tax collectors and sinners. 
And now in this culminating story, this final story in the book, at least before Jerusalem, like in this culminating story, Jesus is going to do that one last time. He's going to spend time and eat with a tax collector. Except this time, it's not just any tax collector. It's a chief tax collector. The first time we've seen someone with that designation in Luke. Come look, he's a chief tax collector. You don't you don't climb the ranks of the tax collector career ladder by being mediocre at your job. You become a, a chief tax collector by by showing the Romans that you can be one of the most ruthless, efficient, exploitative tax collectors there is. And just to drive that home, Luke assured us that Zacchaeus was wealthy. Like. You get wealthy as a tax collector by, by exploiting and collecting taxes from those around you. You're, you collect more than you're required to collect so you can pocket the extra. That's how you become wealthy as a tax collector. And so, like, don't let this mental picture you may have of a, a cute little man up in a tree like cloud your image. Zacchaeus is a, a wicked, sinful man. You don't become a chief tax collector any other way. He had exploited and intimidated his way to wealth and power. Now, the second thing we should notice here also pertains to Zacchaeus' wealth. You may recall just a couple passages before this. We looked at the story of the rich young ruler in the book of Luke. And in that story, Jesus makes the comment... How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? And it, indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Like, it is hard. In fact, it is impossible for the, the rich to enter the kingdom of God in their own power. And now here we have Zacchaeus, right, who's a, a chief tax collector, he's a great sinner, and he's wealthy. Those two things, like his, his sinfulness and his wealth, according to what Jesus said before, should disqualify him from salvation. It would make it impossible for him in his own power to earn his way to God. And yet, we already read the end of the story, and we know this passage ends with Jesus saying, today salvation has come to his house. Because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. So this passage ends with Jesus affirming that wealthy, sinful Zacchaeus had been saved. Which leads to the question, like, how do we get there? Pick up the story in verse 3. He, that is Zacchaeus, wanted to see who Jesus was. But because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Just notice here like, that it's, it's Jesus who initiates this interaction. It's Jesus who initiates this interaction between these two men. Zacchaeus wasn't calling out for mercy like the blind beggar in the previous story. He just climbed up the tree because he wanted to see Jesus. But he wasn't looking for any interaction. 
We're given no indication that Zacchaeus has any sense that he actually needs anything from Jesus. He just wants to see him. But then Jesus reaches the spot where he is, and he looks up, and he looks at Zacchaeus in the face, and he says, I must stay at your house today. Jesus is the one who seeks after Zacchaeus. He is the one who came to seek and save the lost, and Zacchaeus is one of the lost. Continuing in verse 6, we read, So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He is gone to be the guest of a sinner. So the crowd looks out and they're, they're incensed with Judas's choice of a host, right? precisely because Zacchaeus is a great sinner. But Zacchaeus' sin doesn't stop Jesus from being willing to associate and commune with him. And this is one of, the, one of the hardest aspects of Christianity for us to fully wrap our minds around. Right? For two reasons. Either, like some people are convinced, like, we're convinced that we're good people. Like, that we're not really all that bad. And so we don't need a Savior. Right? That's, that's one problem. Right? But like you believe that, you never truly grasp your need for a Savior. You'll never fully accept the salvation that Jesus has to offer. Or, some people can find the other end of the spectrum. Right? You're, you're painfully aware of your sin. You know you've done terrible things. And because of that, you're convinced that your sins are so terrible right, that Jesus cannot possibly want to have anything to do with you. There are two ends of the spectrum. Either you think you're a good person or you think you're so bad that Jesus has nothing, would have nothing to do with you. So this. This morning, everyone who's here, whether you've been following Jesus for a long time or whether you've never trusted Jesus, everyone here, we need to have our minds firmly fixed on two truths. Without these two truths, nothing in Christianity makes sense and everything falls apart. The two truths, first, each and every one of us is a sinner who has fallen short of God's standard of perfection. And the second truth is that no amount of sin, like no badness of sin, will ever stop Jesus from seeking after you and offering forgiveness. Without those two ideas, that we are sinful and yet no sin is ever too great for Jesus to deal with, without those two ideas, nothing else about Christianity will make sense. If you don't believe you're a sinner, then you don't think you need Jesus. Like Jesus came and had no sin so that He could be sin for us. He could take our sin upon Himself. Like if you don't believe you have sin that needs to be taken, you don't need Jesus. If you believe, and then on the other hand, if you believe your, your sins are too much for Jesus, then you have no cause for hope. If you believe your sins are too great, then Jesus has nothing to offer. But Zacchaeus was exploiting and thieving his way to power when Jesus came for him. The Apostle Paul was murdering Christians when Jesus came for him. Jesus seeks lost sinners. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Jesus said back in chapter 5, It is not 
the healthy, you need a doctor, but the sick. No matter how sick you may be, no matter how bad you think your sins are, Jesus is willing to seek you and come to you. The question is, how will you respond? We see Jesus' response in verse 8. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, there's a, there's a bit of a, a time jump here in verse 8. Right? That this seems that this part seems to take place in Zacchaeus' house. They probably shared a meal together. And Luke doesn't tell us what was said over that meal. But it's a pretty safe assumption that Jesus talked about God and sin and the salvation he offered. So they're having these conversations. And Zacchaeus stands up and he says, Lord, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And what we see in this one verse is that Zacchaeus has encountered the amazing grace that is found in Jesus. He has trusted Jesus to save him. Like even though we don't have the actual conversation itself, we already saw in verse 9 that Jesus says, Today salvation has come to this house. And while we don't see the actual moment of conversion for Zacchaeus, we clearly see the result in this verse. When someone trusts in Jesus, when someone places their faith in Jesus and decides to follow Him, two things happen. First, their heart is transformed. We see this throughout the Bible, sometimes called different things. Sometimes it's called being made a new creation, or the old self dying, or being born again. In Ephesians, Paul puts it this way, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, but God made us alive together with Christ. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Theologians use the term regeneration for this phenomenon. But whatever you want to call it, or whatever you want to picture it, like the point is that when someone becomes a Christian, there's a heart-level transformation that takes place in that person's heart. Their priorities change, their values change, their desires change. And with this in Zacchaeus, when he says, Look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. So here's a man right, who, before he encountered Jesus, was willing to be hated and face ridicule and be despised by becoming a tax collector. Right? He was a ruthless tax collector and endured all that ridicule and rode through the ranks simply because he valued money and being a tax collector was a fast track to wealth and money. Zacchaeus, before he met Jesus, was materialistic and greedy and cared about nothing more than his own personal wealth. But then, he encountered Jesus. And he his heart transformed. He go from valuing personal wealth <clears throat> and being one to exploit others to get it to being willing to give half his possessions to the poor. His, his value changed radically. And it's important to realize, like this kind of giving, this giving of half your possessions to the poor, right, 
That's far more generous, far greater than anything that's ever required in the law. So Zacchaeus is not doing this out of some kind of moral obligation. He's not doing it to earn favor. He's doing it because his heart has been transformed. The Holy Spirit has come into his heart and transformed him. The old Zacchaeus has died, and God has made Zacchaeus alive together with Christ. And in that process, Zacchaeus has been given new values that align with the values of Jesus. Zacchaeus doesn't offer to give half his possession to the poor to earn some kind of spiritual credit. He does it because in his heart he suddenly values his own wealth less. And he cares more deeply about the plight of the poor. And that, that heart transformation is an essential part of salvation. Like if, if we don't have a heart transformation, if that doesn't happen in the process, then no matter what someone says, they might believe about Jesus. If their heart hasn't been transformed, they haven't really trusted Jesus. But that being said, sometimes that transformation isn't as outwardly obvious as it was with Zacchaeus. But growing up, I was a good, well-behaved kid. Like I was, for the most part, well-behaved at home. I was easily one of the best-behaved kids in my class at school. I was by far one of the best-behaved kids in my Sunday school class. Like, like I, had this, I had this distinct memory of sitting in Sunday school. Like for whatever reason, like my age group at my church at that time was just a bunch of rowdy kids. And I remember sitting there thinking, like, we're in church and they're acting like this? Like, I was flabbergasted. But here's the thing. Like, I look good outwardly, but my, my good behavior, whether at home or at school or at church, it was always motivated by my desire to earn praise and others from others to fuel my own pride. At home, I wanted my parents to praise me and make me feel good. At school, I wanted my teachers to praise me and let me know how much better than other kids I was. At church, I wanted to make God happy so that I could go to heaven someday. And I was good at it. I was very, very aware of how much better I was than the other kids. <laughs> and because of that, like... I was sure I, I deserved that praise they were giving me. Like, I was sure because of that I was set to go to heaven. Like, like surely God would let little, well-behaved, cute little Tim into heaven someday. Like, but through all that, like my motivation was always to earn the plaudits of the authorities and therefore feed my ego and my pride. My, my motivation was never to honor Christ out of a transformed heart. So when I finally did recognize that actually I am a sinner, that I can't be good enough to earn God's favor, when the Holy Spirit finally did come and transform my heart, when I trusted that Jesus had to be my righteousness, that I couldn't be my own righteousness, when I went through that process, ultimately like my outward actions didn't change all that much. My actions already looked pretty good from the outside. But what did change drastically were my motivations behind my actions. Like my heart was transformed to let my desire, 
at least in my better moments. My desire was no longer praise for myself, but my desire was to see Jesus honored. And that's what happens in conversion, in salvation. The Holy Spirit comes and He puts our old selfish self to death. He gives us a heart that desires to magnify and honor and glorify Jesus instead. And that's what happened to Zacchaeus. That's what happened to each of us who follow Jesus. Like, and when our heart is transformed, when our desire is to honor Jesus, one of the expressions of that desire, one of the, one of the expressions, one of the ways that we honor Jesus is by confessing and repenting. We see Zacchaeus do this as well. In the second half of verse 8, Zacchaeus says, If I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. When Zacchaeus says, like, if I have cheated anyone out of anything, he's not saying, well, I'm not sure if I have, but if I have, then I will. Like, he, he knows he has. What he's really saying is, like, anyone who I have cheated out of anything, I will repay four times back. It is insane that it's, like a, it's like both a confession of sin and a desire to turn away from that sin and make things right. A repayment of, of four times, which is what Zacchaeus offered. Right? That, that repayment is what the Old Testament law requires of thieves. So by offering to repay four times the amount, Zacchaeus is saying, yes, I'm a thief. In my role as tax collector, I stole, I was a thief. Right? He's not making excuses. He's not saying, like, look, it was, it was my job. I, I couldn't help it. He's not trying to justify his behavior, which we're so prone to do with our sin. So easy to excuse it and to try to justify it. But Zacchaeus here just owns it. Zacchaeus, yes, I'm a thief. I confess. He's taking ownership for what he has done, and he's seeking to make it right. And, and the beautiful thing about the gospel the beautiful thing about the salvation that Jesus offers is that it leaves us entirely free to confess like this. It leaves us entirely free to own our failures. We don't have to put on a mask to pretend that we have it all figured out. We don't have to hide our sin from others. Because we believe right, that our, our sin has been dealt with on the cross. Right? All sin, past, present, and future, dealt with on the cross. If we hide our sin and pretend like they're not there, like we're just cheapening what Jesus did. So don't cheapen the cross. Confess your sin. Let the Holy Spirit do its work that comes through confession. The punishment has been paid. Therefore, the, the guilt and the shame is gone. And we are free to confess. We're free to turn in repentance. We're free to move forward, thinking to live a life that honors Jesus. This, this act of confession and repentance is something that's important both at the beginning of someone's faith, like we see from Zacchaeus here, but it's also important to continue confessing and repenting as we go through life. Even after we place our faith in Jesus, we still sin. Our old sinful self still clings to us and reared its ugly head at times. 
And then we'll come with it. It's important that we confess those sins. In 1 John, John writes, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Likewise, James, who is writing to people who have already decided to follow Jesus, he says, Confess your sin to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. If you're, you're here and you've been struggling with some sin, you've been hiding it out of shame or fear, I just urge you, like, confess it. Jesus already took the shame. He already paid the price. Confess your sin. Expose it to the light. We're called in the Bible to fight and put sin to death. It's much easier to fight an enemy who's in the light than one that's in the dark. To confess your sin. Bring it to the light. Trust John's word that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. And likewise, if, if someone comes to you to confess, put the gospel into action. Don't judge. Don't even primarily seek to help them overcome their sin. Instead, do what James says. Someone comes to you confessing sin. Pray for them that they may be healed. Zacchaeus, in this passage, offered us a picture of what it looks like to go from a rebellious sinner to a repentant follower of Jesus. But it all starts because Jesus sought and saved him. So as we, we prepare to leave this morning, that's the question, like what, what do we do with, with this passage? And first, if you're, if you're here and you've, you've never followed Jesus, you've never had the experience that Key has had here where he is transformed from a wicked, greedy sinner into a follower of Jesus. You've never had that experience. I just urge you, implore you to trust in Jesus. Trust that because of Jesus' death on the cross, all your sins have been paid for. And you can be made right with God. You've never done that and you have more questions about what that might look like, what that means, I'd be happy to talk to you about that. For those of us who are here who, who have trusted Jesus, there are three things in response to this passage to impact our lives. First, now this passage ought to cause us to rejoice that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Because we once were the lost. Without Jesus coming to seek and save us, we were utterly without hope. So rejoice that verse 10 is true, that the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, and because of that, you could be saved. Rejoice that God loved you enough to send His Son 
to die in your place, even though He lived a sinless life. Reflect on how much, how deep that love must be, and then rejoice in that kind of love. Second way we respond to this passage. Jesus said that the Son of Man, that is Jesus, came to seek and save the lost. And then at the very end of his life, he's going to pass that charge on to his disciple. When we bear the name Christian, it means little Christ. Right? We are to take up his mission and make it our own. And so we are called to go out sharing the gospel, telling other people about Jesus. We can't do the work that Jesus did to make salvation possible, but we can tell others and invite others to follow Him. We respond to the fact that Jesus came and sought and saved us by going out and telling others about Jesus. Finally, in response to this, I just encourage you again, I know I've said it once, but I'll say it again. Like, live a life that, that models confession, that models repentance. No one here has it all figured out. No one here without sin. The most powerful testimony we can be to a watching world is to be people who own our sin and trust that it's been paid for. And we live in that freedom. We don't have to act we don't have to feel ashamed. We can trust that our sins, past, present, future, truly were paid for on the cross. If we really believe that, if we really believe what we claim about Jesus' death on the cross, if we really believe what we claim about forgiveness and grace, then confession and repentance should be the natural overflow of that. Any tendency to hide sin, keep it hidden in the dark, like it's a, a sign that we need to deepen our knowledge and our thoughts of the cross and what it accomplished there. I encourage you to live a life of confession and repentance. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your Son. That you sent Jesus to come to earth to endure the pain and the trials of living among us sinful people. Because you loved us. And you loved us when we wanted nothing to do with you. Well, we were still your enemies. You sent your Son. Not because we did anything to earn it. Not because we deserved it. But because you loved us and desired to make a way for it to be restored to a right relationship with you. Father, would that truth never grow old? Would we never stop being amazed 
about the depth of love you had for us, even in our sin and rebellion. We never lose sight of the fact that we could not earn your favor, we could not merit your grace, but it's all a gift from you. And will that fuel us, motivate us, implore us to sing your praises and bring you glory? Father, would we then desire to go and tell others about that amazing love you have for them, the way it was shown on the cross through Christ? we joyfully and willingly take up Jesus' mission to seek and save the lost by telling others about Jesus. And as we walk through our lives, as we fail, as we sin, as we fall short of what we know you've called us to, would we display our trust in the cross by freely and quickly confessing our sin. By confessing it to others, by bringing it to you in prayer and asking you to help us fight that sin. Would we turn from sin? Would we live lives that bring you honor and glory, would we day by day become more and more like Jesus? When we fail, would we show our trust in the power of the cross by confessing well? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As you go this morning, would you go rejoicing that the Son of Man came to seek and save you. Would you go desiring other, to tell others about Him? And would you go trusting that when you sin, you may freely confess, trusting that your sins have been dealt with on the cross once and for all time. You are dismissed.